0: This is a book of Exodus. This is a well-traveled book. I'm sure you've had much teaching back and forth in this wonderful book of the Bible. You'll be looking at a <clears throat> an occurrence in the history of the nation of Israel, well, before they'd even read a nation. They had been founded into the country, the land that God had given them at this time, It was even very, very soon after their uh, exodus from Egypt. And they were going to be, well, they're going to be confronted with some situations real early in in this time about the matters of, uh, well, obedience and uh, who they're going to obey, who they're going to look to in times of the need of strengthening. Um, This is just after the time when when they had crossed the Red Sea, God had worked a powerful miracle there, Uh, they got into the the land of the Amalekites, they needed water, Uh, God had Moses get them water, strike the rock, and they had water, and then things started to happen. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, let's follow along in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. By the way, in the name of this message, is, the title of this message is The Lord Our Banner. So Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men. There you go. God always needs men for His work. And go out and fight with Amalek, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat thereon And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The result was, and Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heaven, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, for he said, "Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have with Amalek, have war with Amalek, from generation to generation." <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, I'd like to thank you for the preciousness of the knowledge of your presence in my life. Thank you, God, uh, for showing yourself strong in the nation of Israel in those days. Thank you for showing yourself strong in my life in these days. Thank you for the blessings of a church home. I'm thankful for the blessings of pastors who have the watch care for my soul. I'm thankful, Lord, uh, for the sure knowledge that when I leave this world, I'm going to go into the very hands of God, my Creator pray, God, that you'd hold me up and hold each uh, soul open to receive truth. Lord, I pray that it might you might work through me to bring blessing to this church. In Christ's name I very humbly pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and they lived in an area between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea, which they had recently crossed. If you would picture the Mediterranean Sea coming down, the Red Sea on this limit, the Gulf of Aqaba on this limit, and, and this peninsula then formed a kind of a, a teardrop, and on that southern area, this is where they came in, and they met the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a powerful nomadic-type people who resided mainly in the hill country of southern the Southern Sinai Peninsula. The uh, commentator uh, Edersheim describes it thusly, a sweeter spot of grander scenery can scarcely be imagined than the Wadi Forain. Wadi is the a, is a term for a, for a river or a, a river valley. <clears throat> Here we are at the last among those Sinaitic mountains which rise in such fantastic shapes and exhibit every variety of coloring. Following the windings of the Wadi Pharaon, we come up upon a wide, fertile plain, seemingly all shut in by mountains. This is Rephidim, the battlefield where Israel, Israel, fighting under the banner of Jehovah, defeated Amalek. He further adds that it was a well-watered plain with very many springs and wells, and it was shaded by groves of palm trees. It was said to be the best-favored land in all of the whole Sinai Peninsula. And it was into this land that Israel now entered. (coughs) And it appears that they were immediately confronted by the armed forces of Amalek, as described in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you'd hold your place here (coughs) and go into Deuteronomy chapter 25, And we're going to look at a couple of verses there. Um, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says, remember what, remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when you were come forth out of Egypt, how, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. That described them. They were fierce uh, uh, idol worshippers. <clears throat> they had a heart for their own country and didn't want anybody messing around in it. And apparently what they had initially done was was kind of guerrilla or hit-and-run tactics. They weren't ready to confront Israel proper, but they were sounding them out, so to speak, by coming into the hind parts of the camp and taking on some of those the stragglers, okay? And uh, they were were making merchandise of them. It's possible that those people, the Amalekites, knew about what had occurred in Egypt, even not so long before. And they knew that, that Israel, the Jews, had spoiled Egypt, and they brought out a lot of loot. That might have been part of the reason why that they were assaulting Israel, Certainly part of it was too is this was their, this was the prime part of their country. As it was stated there, they ranged all through the Sinai Peninsula in times even up to the the borders of the Dead Sea. They were nomadic peoples even as perhaps the the Bedouins of that day and today. Um, And so Israel was now being tested uh, by the prospect of a major battle and Israel's metal was going to be tested for the first time. We're going to find out what they were made of. Moses took this very seriously, and he acted accordingly, as we shall see. Um, <clears throat> after this battle, we know that they were discomfited. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But they weren't destroyed. They were large uh, in population and expanse. And they would continue to be a threat to Israel for some goodly amount of time, centuries. Uh, Wouldn't be until the time of David, King David would finally put the kibosh on them, pretty good, and they ceased to be uh, pretty much as a people group. Um, It was interesting, uh, one of the terms uh, the the, uh, Amalekites called their kings, kind of like the pharaohs of Egypt, they had a term Pharaoh for their kings, and Agag was the term for their, for their kings, and they called sometimes the ruling class, even the nation itself came to be known as Agag, or they were Agagites. Agagites and Amalekites were the same thing. And this was interesting, this is kind of an aside, a little bit of a rabbit. But in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, it says After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman. The son of Hamadadatha, the Agagite, to a certain position. So, <clears throat> what what I think was happening here was similar to what happened to the to Israel when they went into captivity, and Daniel and his like his three friends and large numbers of the of the upper class from the from the top families in uh, in the country. They're taken into captivity and they're put into service in. Uh, under Nebuchadnezzar, and we know that Daniel prospered very, very well. well the information is here is that, that Haman, as the son of Hamadatha Hamadath, uh, was a part of this ruling class. They have maybe had have been taken in by Ahasuerus or his, or his forebear, and they'd been taken into, uh, into the land of uh, uh, the Ahasuerus' kingdom, and they were serving there. And we know, <laughs> the thing that's significant to me is, I've always wondered why Haman had it out so bad for the Jews. Well, it was because that his, his ancestors had got whipped on time and time and time again by the Jews. And it wasn't just out to get Mordecai, remember, he was going to get every one of them for what they did. I'll get even with you, I got the power. Remember, he was one of the richest men in that country. Okay, back to the point. In this message, we'll look at three things, the call to war, (laughs) the battle, and the application for us. The Amalekites had chosen to launch an all-out assault against Israel, likely figuring that they would be easy prey for their army, for their soldiers, would have been well-trained, they had best weapons and tactics, they had the terrain, they were on their home field, Everybody knows, plays sports, the home field advantage is much to be coveted. But in this case, it wasn't gonna gonna serve them uh, for the best. Moses set Joshua, his right-hand man, to lead the resistance against Amalek. And they must have been kind of a ragtag outfit. They had little or no training. Uh, They had inadequate weapons they lacked discipline, but, <laughs> but they did have Moses as their leader. They had Joshua as their field commander, and they had God as their banner. God was walking out for them. And so <clears throat> it's, it speaks there of this rod of God. It's mentioned first of in, um, in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8-10, through 10, you know, that when, when Moses was challenged to be, to go out and take the children of Israel out of Israel, God had told him that when you go before Pharaoh, cast down your rod and uh, it'll turn into a serpent and then you know, that'll be a sign of miracles. And then in, subsequently, we know that, <clears throat> that in the, each one of the, the 10 plagues, most of them, God often said to them, take thy rod and stretch thine hand And a miracle would be performed. Now, this is kind of the rod that's talked about in 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 Psalm 23 when he says, "My rod and thy staff, they comfort me." This wasn't a little rod, little switch of correction. It was something that was it became a token, it became a banner, it became a representative of God Himself that He was working through the nation of Israel. The Jews came to know and understand this, didn't they? You know, you've seen Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you know. Well, it it happened in real time. I don't know if it was a piece of uh, diamond willow. Likely it wasn't. But it symbolized God's power. And when when, uh, the people were now in the field and they were confronted with this situation, Um, Moses wanted the people to know that God was watching out for them. That's why he said um, you you can go in the the geographic position where they were near Rephidim. There's a mountain behind it and then there's this little hill that overlooks that battlefield and that's where Moses Aaron and Hur went. Um, I'm not going to go in and we don't need to look at all those all those miracles because you know them well. Um, they had seen the Red Sea parted. They adjusted, <clears throat> just they'd got across the Red Sea, they were bellyaching for water. Moses struck the rock with the rod and they got water. But now there was uh, serious happenings coming on. Um, the nation was now gonna be confronted with their first real challenge in coming out of the nation. Um, so, Israel had seen what God could do, and they knew that the rod symbolized God's power and deliverance from impossible situations. What could be more impossible than being faced with an ocean, with a, with a, with a sea in front of you, and to see it parted so you can get through and escape from the, the Egyptian army, which was, hard, which was hard bent to take their. Uh, take their lives. This is what's talked about there in, in <clears throat> towards the end of that chapter when it speaks of Jehovah in the sea. That means the Lord our banner. Now <clears throat> we sometimes think of banners maybe as like a flag or something. Probably not. It was more like some of the, the banners that you would see in some of the, the Roman processions. They would have um, sometimes it was be on two poles or something like that, and it would be on both sides. It would be written or having a description, animals, birds, or you know some sort of depiction. The name of their leader and that group, that cohort, or that army would identify with that manner. Okay, that's what was significant about this. Is what it signified. The Lord, Jehovah see is our banner. We are under His protection. We identify with Him. He identifies with us. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> and we know that what the Bible says, they set up there, the battle was joined, Moses was there, he's holding up the... The banner, he's holding up the rod, the battle is joined and everything is going real good. But Moses starts getting tired. <clears throat> so, oh, he's, you know, and then he's maybe like this, you know. And, and uh, he's getting tired, he's eight years old. But he's getting worn out. Uh, you don't think that it takes something to hold something up over your head? You try it sometime. You military guys? They used to have us in, in basic training. The first time they told us, after PT, they said, take and put your rifle over your hands like that, and uh, you can just hold it out there. And a lot of guys are going, ah, man, this is really easy. You hold it out there for a while, and if you, they told you what would happen, woe unto you if you dropped your rifle. Well, oh, that's, that's a short rabbit trail. We ain't going to go any farther. It didn't happen to me. But the significance was, was that Moses needed help. And he had men there to stand in the gap for him and to help him when he needed help most. God's men, able men, men that were prepared to do whatever it took to get the job accomplished and it wasn't so tough. They went and got a rock, they sat it down, they brought Oral Moses there, they put him over, they sat him down, they brought the rod up, he held it up, and here's the picture. They didn't hold the rod, just the rod. They had one hand on the rod, and they had one hand on his hand. It says they held his hand, and in that way, that rod stayed fixed. Both men, with Moses, and Moses, he could just, he didn't even have to hang on. They were holding on for him. They were doing what they had to do to get the work accomplished. That this banner could stay up there, because we know that what happened. As long as they, the banner was up there, Israel prevailed. When it went down, remember when, when Moses got tired? And Amalek prevailed. That means that they were taking over the battlefield. You can't have that if you're going to win a war. That isn't what happened. We're going to go on and we'll look here and we'll see what happened in the aftermath of that, Uh, the lifting up of uh, well yeah, let's talk a little bit about Aaron and Hur. We know who Aaron was, he was the priest but who was this guy Hur? He isn't referenced very much Uh, a lot of people think that he was perhaps the uh, the brother-in-law to Moses by Miriam his sister He's all, he was almost certainly someone who was well-known and he was trusted by Moses. Exodus 24, verse 14, if you want to whip over there. <clears throat> Exodus 24, verse 14. <clears throat> and as he said unto the elders, tarry ye here for us, this is Moses <clears throat> speaking, until we come again unto you, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And so this man, along with Aaron, had Moses' confidence that he had the character, he had the ability to stand in the gap for him when he was gone, to hear matters of law and cases or disputes or whatever, to settle things. The lifting up of hands, oftentimes pictured prayer. These men didn't just go up the hill so that they could get a good vantage point of the battle going on, which was, you know, people did that in the American Civil War. They used to travel out from the towns and they'd sit up on the hills and they'd watch these armies slaughtering each other. Not pretty, but they did it. Well, these men weren't there for any show. They were there to pray. They were there to hold up their heart their, their needs for Jehovah God in that time when those men were out on that battlefield putting their life on the line. Mm-hmm. That's what soldiers do. And they prayed and they prayed and eventually they had victory. They had the victory that they desired. The Bible says certainly in James chapter 5, verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And these men fit the bill. Effectual, fervent prayer, availeth much. And their prayers were heard by Jehovah God. <coughs> and as he said, as long as Moses held up, well, things went well. Moses needed help and as the, the battle went in their favor, uh, the rod was stretched out and they had victory. And this doesn't, uh, that this doesn't say that they held up the rod of God, but again, but they held up the arms, they held up the very hands of, of Moses. They were joined with him. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, it says this is a, this is a principle that, uh, of ministry. Jesus, in, in his ministry, at the time when he turned out the 70, two by two they went out in pairs. It's a wonderful thing when, 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 when believers can be yoked together in God's service. There's something special there. It's God's way. Just saying. Uh, but it says in Ecclesiastes 4, 11, 12, Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But if, how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The principle is that there is strength in numbers. And what came from this was that Israel discomfited Amalek. You wonder what that term means? Well, the Romans coined a term to decimate an enemy. That meant that they were able to kill one out of ten every soldier on the battlefield, 10%. And that was usually enough to send armies fleeing, sometimes not. But in this case, we know that it was perhaps close to, if not an annihilation, annihilation meant total total destruction. I'm not sure exactly what happened with Amalek, but we do know that that term, discomfited, it means to, to put to rout, to vanquish, to scatter in fight to cause to flee. And so these tough guys, they had to turn tail and they had to run and leave the field. Because Jehovah God gave those men victory. These untrained civilians whipped up on the professional army. What do you think of that? It don't happen in the real world. So, That was the the battle and the call to battle and the battle itself. And now the battle is over. Well, <clears throat> what is there here for us? That's what it's. That's what this is all about for me, for you, hopefully. This is a good historical uh, lesson. we you learned a little bit about something about the geography and about the peoples. But the application for for us today is that now as then, God's leaders sometimes need help. So how do we do that? Well, one way is that we should recognize and honor recognize and the honor due to their position. First Timothy chapter five verse 17 says, "Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine." Now, <clears throat> I've read a lot of commentary on this and I have my own personal thoughts for this. It's, it's, it does talk about financial responsibility the church has. A church that can't support their pastor, uh, well, we you know that tent making was very, very common. Paul was a tent maker. He worked when he had to to supplement his income so that he could do the word of God when when times came when he received offerings and support. I'm sure he was full bore ahead. Uh, and he was able to <clears throat> and he was able to uh, accomplish the ministry. Biblical principle, first Timothy chapter five verse eighteen says from the old testament it said, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is is worthy of his reward. So a church that has the means should support their pastors to the fullest. We're gonna look at this a little bit closer. Um, something we need to know and understand, I think that we're, our church is aware of and practices. But I don't think you can ever, uh, you can't ever pay uh, people that have uh, CEO ability, God-given ability too much. I think, in our world today, the wrong people are put on pedestals. Billionaires, sports stars, entertainers, authors, members of the academic elite, the media, CEOs of large company, men of science, men of science like in in times past, uh, Thomas Alva Edison, had hundreds if not thousands of patents. Edison had a had a a huge laboratory where he had hundreds of men working for him. Every person working in his laboratory that produced something that got a patent, Edison got credit for it and got paid for it. George Westinghouse, who was a contemporary of him, also had many, many patents in the electrical field. He was the one that designed uh, the the first uh, uh, safety brakes for, for railroad cars and so on. When uh, George Westinghouse, in his laboratory, which wasn't as big, his people, when they came up with it, something that could be go out and be patented, they patented. And they got credit for it. Westinghouse got credit for the ones that he developed. This, to me, speaks about volumes about strength of character. That Thomas Alva Edison was probably um, somebody probably wouldn't want to know. And. As I mentioned, Edison and Einstein. Well, Albert Einstein was once asked by reporters, what does it feel like to be the smartest man in the world? Einstein said, I don't know, I'm not Nicholas Tesla. If you know anything about science, you know that Tesla was, he knew his stuff. He was so far, he was, might have been one of the, with Newton or some of these other boys that knew, knew more stuff than people ever can figure out today. Uh, This is another aside, Edison Edison favored direct current power. What kind do we use today? Alternating current? Who developed that? Nikola Tesla. Just saying. Okay. Gone are the types of men who were great leaders of our nation in the past. Washington George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, some of my favorites, you can add or subtract or delete, however you want. But the greatest leaders in our country today are not found in business, government, or science, but in the Lord's churches, and they are of as high a caliber as the great church leaders of yesteryear. John Gano and John Leland and other Baptists like them during the Revolutionary War served faithfully in the Continental Army. And this led George Washington to state Baptist chaplains were the most prominent and useful in the Army. They were with the troops and they ministered for God for the good so that the, fu- the commander in chief recognized that the man who would become our first president. Jubal Stearns. Spark revival that led to many churches that were started in the Carolinas and beyond. Incredible preacher by, by all uh, reports. John Clark, founder of the first, uh, the first Baptist church in America in Rhode Island, and many, 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 many more. Men of great character and integrity. And as I read them, I read stories about them, and I look at some of the men that I've known, I see some very, very, very great similarities. God continues, well, these were men who stood for something, and these were men who stood for God. God continues to use Baptists to get the gospel to the lost world today. Some that I have known are Brother E. L. Bynum, Tabernacle Baptist Church in, uh, in uh, Lubbock, Texas. I heard uh, Brother... Uh, Brother Bynum preached at least once here, maybe twice. I think it was Brother, Brother Lambert was called when, uh, to preach when uh, when E. O. Bynum was uh, was here preaching. Powerful preacher. And they had, a, they had a, a large printing ministry. I really I I almost cried when the Plains Baptist Challenger uh, went out of print that he'd edited for so long. I Couldn't even remember. He's a great man, great man of God. Milton Martin started churches in, in Mexico that multiplied each other. They say there's hundreds of churches. Hundreds or more? Churches started the work of Milton Martin. Very humble man. Got, he went into Bible ministry, getting Bibles into China, the Iron Curtain countries. I remember, I remember way back, this was way back, I don't remember when, when it was. I can't even remember it right far back. But Milton Martin was preaching here. I was up here for the mission conference from Sourdough. And I, had, I was in one of those little, uh, little uh, uh, Sunday school rooms down in the basement, some of you guys remember. He was in, and I had been off doing something and I was going back to my room and, and uh, I come down in the basement and I saw Brother Martin's door was open. And I said, I'm going through the Bible. You know, he's going through the Bible. If you there, going through the Bible, going through the Bible, I watched him. You know? Watched him for quite a while, and then, uh, then later on, I uh, uh, I heard him preach, and I realized that Milton Martin wrote the outline for that sermon just out of the book. All he made notes was notes of the scripture, and he preached that incredible preacher. We have men like that today. Yet, we'll go on. The Dearmore brothers—they served in uh, Africa and South America. Robert Sargent—I've heard him preach. He's going to be preaching for us here at the at the uh, at the church camp. If you aren't there, you're going to miss out. Wow. He's a great preacher. I love to hear him. His church is, has a, uh, founded the ministry out there in Wenatchee, uh, in Wenatchee, Oregon. They have a ministry going in Fiji. Uh, strong church. Douglas Hammett, Brother Hammett, 20-some, 30 years pastor in Lehigh Valley Baptist Church. God picks him up, sends him to Botswana. They're getting going to work there in Francistown. He gets kicked out of there, goes down to South Africa. Brother Kastner comes up, takes over the work in Francistown. Um, brother, Brother Hammett designed techniques for reaching people that are in the first years or first generation of literacy. The first thing I remember and I used was the Drawing Men to Christ series. It was all, you know, you all pictographs. and I can't draw for nothing. But, I, but I, I put stuff into the computer though. It's, it's just wonderful work. And he's got a social media tools that he has that implemented. And today, not just from him, but the men that he mentored, that he saw saved and mentored and trained and discipled They have ministries in the Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Malawi, this is South Africa, of course, and he's still going. Well, our pastors should be grouped with these men for the work that they've done and are doing. It takes some strength of character. It takes the God's hand working in their life, as in Pastor Humphrey, but this church was going through a church split, tough times. Most men would have folded. Pastor Humphrey dealt with it. And this church today is here because of his courage and his dedication, not to this church, but to God. A humble man, a man used of God. Our pastor Demolo, he's the way. I can say whatever I want about him. When when Pastor Humphrey uh, Pastor Humphrey had big shoes, but Pastor Demelo didn't jump right in them. He didn't want to be like Pastor Humphrey exactly, but he was gonna be leader of this church. Now he's got something going over here. I don't know what it is. But, but he's led this church and Just, I was going to save this to the end of the message, but today there are too many preachers that give the give their congregation, their people, what they want to hear. There are not enough preachers that give them, give us what we need to hear. Pastor Demlow's been strong. In every area of, uh, of ministry and showing us, getting us prepared for what's to come. Just like Moses, Aaron, Her, Joshua, they, had, they were going to be involved in conflict with the enemy. The world is going to be coming for us one day. We need to be prepared. And it's going to be through having strong leaders that we will get through it one way or the other. this matter of double honor I believe that God gives every man who is called to the field as a missionary evangelist or or the pastorate of a New Testament church that he has a double portion of the ability to teach and preach God's word and to discern God's will for their life and ministry through the work of the Holy Spirit in their life spiritual perception and receptivity Um, and a special anointing a special unction that they receive from God, and I've observed I've observed this phenomenon both in mature preachers and those that are young, and some that are even preparing for the field. Um, Brother McIntyre, awesome preacher. Brother Rowley, that was here, to me, a top-notch preacher, young man. Brother Fryman, young preacher, young young pastor, couldn't bring it. Where does this come from? Well, it's because they're all cut from the same cloth, so to speak. They have God-given ability to be the leaders or potential leaders of New Testament church. Brother Mallard preached here. Great preacher. Young man, where does it come from? It comes from God. It comes from God preparing men, equipping men, sending men to do His work. God wants the pastors of His New Testament churches to be recognized as to their worth and honored and respected accordingly. It seems that in the early churches, there were often a multiplicity of leaders in a particular body. This may have some reference to the the terms uh, synonymous for one another pastor, elder, and bishop. Uh, As I was thinking about this, I was thinking um, about some material I read years ago about the the Welsh Baptists in the early centuries uh, AD, up until and and through the time when Roman Catholicism invaded and began to uh, influence those countries at one time when the after the the catholics had been in there a while and they saw that the Baptists refused to join with them they they buddied up to them and they said let's get all together we're going to have a little uh, conference they gathered up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them came to this and they killed them all but the work still went on because there were men that were still back in those churches that could carry on the work They used to have what they call conventions. Today, uh, the the Baptist conventions and associations and so on are not associated with the uh, teaching, preaching, the full counsel of God, areas of baptism, and uh, uh, what the New Testament church is. But to them, and I've read about it, they they called them conventions, but what they did, they would get together, preachers, pastors, uh, and they would talk about the work. They would share what they knew of, uh, you know, I imagine they had some preaching, teaching amongst themselves, but they would talk about the work. And I remember reading about in one, one case what they would do, you know, see, they had dozens or hundreds of villages, small towns, all over the country, you know, just like in Israel in the old days. They didn't have, the people were agrarian. You don't walk, can't walk 10, 20 miles to work. You got to get out there in the field. You go one, two miles. They got villages all over. What they would do, and they would travel, this is another thing too, this is when I got this during a mission conference years ago, I preached about uh, on a point from uh, Leonard Verduin's book, Reformers and Their Stepchildren one of the the hallmarks of the Baptists in the Dark Ages was they called them Stabler or Stabler, staff carriers. What they would do, they would go around they carried their staff and they go around and they meet somebody, they talk to them about the Lord Follow them around, find out where where they're from, where they're going, what they need. And their, their, their form of ministry, Baptist, was so effective that the Catholics began sending out their people with staffs, stablers, because they wanted to identify with the Baptists. Just saying. Okay, made me lose my praise. Okay, um and so those churches they would network and they would say for instance, you know, they had names this long and they would say well God, I was traveling over here over there and I met somebody but I can't get over there and the other guy would say well we have a village you know uh, we know a man over in this village he's only about five miles away he'll go there on Sunday and they're gonna preach he will find this man and they'll preach that's how the work was done that's all that many many souls were won and churches started in those countries God has blessed this church with two men to lead us, Pastor Demlo is our presiding elder and Pastor Humphrey is our associate pastor. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12-13, it says that we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves, strive for unity. The commentator Barnes says this, the word no seems to mean that they were not to make themselves strangers to them, to be cold and distant towards them, to be ignorant of their wants, or to be indifferent to them, while a people are not to obtrusively intermeddle with the business of a minister any more than they will with any other man, yet there are things in regard to him which they should be acquainted. Now listen. They should seek to to be personally acquainted with him and make him their confidant and counselor in spiritual matters. Selah. They should seek his friendship and endeavor to maintain all proper intercourse with him. Selah. They should not regard him as a distant man or a stranger among them. Selah. They should so far understand his circumstances as to know what is requisite to make him comfortable and to be on such terms that they may be readily and cheerfully furnish what he needs. Selah, and they are to know or regard Him as their spiritual teacher and ruler, not to be strangers to the place where He preaches, and the word of life, that preaches the word of life, and not to listen to His admonitions admonitions and reproofs as those of a stranger, but as of those of a pastor and a friend. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. So be it. It should be so. We also can pray for them and our fellow church members, Aaron and her, were partners with Moses in the vital matter of prayer. Uh, our pastors should be at the top all the time of our prayer list. Aaron and her, their part in the fight was on the ba- not on the battlefield, on the plain, but as prayer warriors, and they accomplished this for the good ends of God and their nation. There'll be no victory in spiritual warfare without prayer. So as our church faces new kinds of challenges in service, we, spend, we should spend more time in prayer and do all we can do to assist the men that are set in this church as leaders. I know this church does well in these areas, but as these new challenges arise, and distractions come we must double our efforts in prayer and all manner of support for our pastor <clears throat> no church is any stronger than its pastor we need strong men to be the leaders of uh, this church and all New Testament churches and just as an aside to um, I put this in here I don't know what I was supposed to do with it but. Pastors need uh, need rest too. I'm thankful. I'm glad that Pastor Demlo uh, felt confident enough to take the time off after the mission conference to go and spend time with his family. And some. I heard they're going to go to the Creation Museum. Did they get over there? Man, I'd like to go there. Well, this is uh, this was for me. I love my pastors. I love both of them. I've known one a lot longer than the other. I love them both as much, one as the other. They should to love them and esteem them, not just for who they are, but for what they do, but for who they are. Okay. Um, Questions, comments? Anybody? Pretty quiet.